Act One of Hamilton by Mary P. Hamlin and George Arliss. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Author's Preface This play is written for the stage. It is written with a desire to convey to the audience that the builders of the foundation of the American Republic were real people, and not merely a procession of nice gray-haired old gentlemen who were mainly occupied in sitting for their portraits to Gilbert Stuart and John Trumbull. Probably no keen admirer of Alexander Hamilton will be fully satisfied with the play. But the authors consoled themselves with the reflection that no playwright could do justice to the power and scope of this remarkable man within the limits of an evening's entertainment. In writing a play dealing with a great historical figure, it is necessary to select an incident that brings out boldly the predominant characteristics of the hero. Having decided upon the incident, it is advisable not to be fogged by the introduction of other important episodes, however much they may redound to the credit of the central figure, or however much you may be tempted to use them. Alexander Hamilton achieved distinction in so many different directions, as a shipping clerk, as a soldier, as a powerful and graceful writer, as an orator, as a tactician, as a master of the financial policy of nations, that to the casual reader of history it might seem difficult to discover this dominant characteristic. But to the student and lover of Hamilton it stands out clear and well-defined. Courage. Not the courage of the blind egoist or of the imperious politician, but the courage which had its roots in the love of truth and of honorable dealing. And so the authors chose the incident which forms the basis of this play. In their opinion, no single event could be found that displays this fine quality of courage more surely and more definitely than the course adopted by Hamilton in the face of the attack by his political enemies. Those descendants of Alexander Hamilton whom the authors have had the honor of meeting have expressed their satisfaction at the selection of this incident, and the authors feel that it is no breach of confidence to record that they have received words of praise from the two men who know more about Hamilton than perhaps anybody in America, two of his keenest admirers, Senator Lodge and Nicholas Murray Butler. The historical record on which the play is founded can be seen by any student who is so far interested by applying to the Lenox Library in New York. It is known as the Reynolds Pamphlet and is the document written by Alexander Hamilton himself. The play keeps very close to history. The main incidents are, in all essential details, historically correct. It has been necessary to take some few liberties, but these are of minor importance. The dialogue is not written precisely as it might have been spoken at the end of the 18th century. The authors believed that a slavish attempt to eliminate all words and phrases that were probably not in vogue at the time would result in many instances in tedious phraseology and a certain artificiality which they particularly desired to avoid. They have, however, endeavored on the whole to maintain the atmosphere of the period. The stage directions are designed and intended for the guidance of the actors and not for the entertainment of the reader. There is a growing tendency among writers of plays to introduce long and humorous stage directions that are often very entertaining in the library, but very dangerous and misleading for the stage. They are misleading to a producer, because they frequently make a scene appear to be very sparkling, while it is in reality exceedingly dull, the sparkle being confined exclusively to the stage directions. They are dangerous for the actor, because they make him believe that his part is a great deal better than it really is 
and so he is apt to regard his audience as stupid because their intelligence fails to appreciate subtleties that he detected at the reading. In reality, it is the author who is to blame. He has let the actors into certain dark secrets connected with their characters, without giving them the ghost of an opportunity, through the dialogue or situation, of conveying these confidences to the audience. The Players Alexander Hamilton Read by Thomas Peter General Schuyler, read by Amelia Chesley. Thomas Jefferson, read by Wolfgang Bass. James Monroe, read by Alicia Messiah. William B. Giles, read by Donald Gilmore. Count Talleyrand, read by Delmar H. Dolbear. John Jay, Chief Justice, read by Joseph Tabler. Ezekiel, read by E. J. Wiley. James Reynolds, read by Chuck Williamson. Colonel Lear, read by Campbell Shelp. First Man, read by Nemo. Second Man, read by Eva Davis. Betsy Hamilton, read by Abai. Angelica Church, read by T.J. Burns. Mrs. Reynolds, read by Lian Yao. Soldier's Wife, read by phone. Melissa, read by phone. Stage Directions, read by Todd. Hamilton, Act One. Scene. The Exchange Coffee House in Philadelphia. A morning in August during Washington's first administration. It is a great room with low ceiling and neatly sanded floor. Against wall, back, are cupboards with shining pewter tankards and dishes. Center, a great fireplace with wide stone hearth and high back settles on each side. Running upright, table with chairs left of it at irregular intervals. Long seat right of table. Right, back, tub stands on floor and contains melons, cucumbers, bottles of wine, and a pitcher of milk cooling. Over fireplace is a large crimson silk liberty cap with these words above in large letters, Sacred to Liberty. On wall near is the following in large print. Breakfast, two shillings. 50 cents. Dinner with grog or toddy, 3 shillings, 75 cents. Quart of toddy, 1 and 6, 36 cents. Bottle of porter, 2 and 6, 60 cents. Best Madeira, 6 shillings a quart, $1.50. Entrances upper right and left, also door left. A crowd of 8 or 10 men, including 2 or 3 Quakers, smoking church wardens, discovered sitting, standing, drinking. Mainly men of the better class, not rabble. Melissa, the barmaid, is serving drinks. Men come and go during act. James Reynolds, a handsome, dissipated ne'er-do-well of about thirty-five, slightly the worse for liquor, but not drunk, is center of a somewhat jeering crowd at top of table right. Monroe is up left, talking to some men. Giles is sitting at right of small table down left center. Giles is reading some manuscript, possibly a draft of a bill for Congress. As Curtin rises, there is a general hubbub, Reynolds' voice dominant. First citizen is seated on downstage end of long seat right of table right. A second citizen is facing him, seated on a chair. Another is on his left further upon seat. Three men are standing in a group upstage right. An old man is seated on settle right of fireplace reading The Federalist. A man is seated on settle left of the fireplace. He is playing chess with another who is seated on a chair in front of him. 
The chessboard is on a small round table between them. Two Quakers are standing near the door on the left. Monroe is conversing with them. The original flag of the United States, thirteen stars in circle and thirteen stripes, is on wall above inner door on left back. The chairs are all Windsor chairs, dark in color, wainscoting about two feet six inches high. All woodwork in dark oak and walls and ceilings a neutral smoky gray. Round table, down stage left with three chairs round it, two armchairs and one single chair. The high back settles are set at an angle and start from the fireplace down stage on either side. They fit in between two thick upright posts which support a cross beam. Some more posts are suggested right and left at either end of beam. Against the post right is a chair. Three windows in right flat and one similar window in same position is in kitchen seen through entrance up right back. Shelves and bottles in kitchen. Through door left back is backing with door and beyond the street. At rise, Melissa is gathering up tankards and wiping off table right. Reynolds, standing on a chair at upper end of table right. I'm selling, I'm selling. First man, seated right of table, downstage end. Keep quiet there, will you? I'm selling, I'm selling. State securities for the price of printing. I'm selling, I'm selling. Can't hear ourselves speak. What's the use of keeping quiet? Where's a gentleman to do business if he can't do it at the exchange coffee house? Second man, seated down right other side of a table. Oh, where's the gentleman? Send the gentleman here. I'm the gentleman. <laughs> I'm sullen, I'm sullen, I'm sullen. Sit, Sit down. down. Melissa, a tankard of porter, my dear. I'm sullen, I'm sullen. Sit down, Reynolds. How can you be selling when there are no buyers? Enter Talleyrand up left at back. Ask that gentleman if he's nearly finished with the newspaper, Melissa. You see some business between Melissa and the man with the newspaper. He refuses to give it up. Melissa then meets Talleyrand, center at back. He has come on from street left. Reynolds, coming down stage center. Don't any of you gentlemen want to make easy money? I'm offering you state securities for the price of the printing. Here's a hundred dollars going to the highest bidder. Will anyone bid five? Holding up a paper. What state is it on? South Carolina. Laughter from the crowd. I'll give you sixpence for it. Louder laughter. Giles, seated right of round table, downstage left. Where'd you get all this paper all of a sudden, Reynolds? William P. Giles is a small, squat man, with swarthy, dirty-looking skin and a sharp eye. His features are thick and his manner coarse. His boots are heavy, his dress untidy, and his voice loud. He has the air of a successful bully and prize-fighter. Reynolds, right downstage. I got it from the soldiers, Mr. Giles. The poor soldiers have entrusted me. Huh? They'll be very poor soldiers if they trust you. General laugh. Reynolds, reading from a second paper. Here's six months' pay due Private Hiram Mott. Ninety-six dollars due from the state of Virginia. Monroe, upstage left. That's not true, sir. Virginia's paid every cent she owes. James Monroe is a tall man, but because of broad shoulders and stocky build, looks shorter than he is. His manner is the aggressively plain citizen type. He is dressed plainly, 
He lacks Jefferson's gracious bearing, but does not reach Jaws's roughness. Ah, it's easy to see you come from Virginia, sir. But the poor soldiers. Poor soldiers? It's the fortune of war. Talleyrand has been settling the score with Melissa offstage. He speaks with a slight French accent. <laughs> the fortune of war. You bring about uh, this war, your soldiers fight for you and conquer your enemies, and then you repudiate their claim for pay. The fortune of war. Hmm? The war for them. The fortune for you. Huh? Some laughter. Reynolds mixes with men at back right. Talleyrand is very tall, with legs too small for his fat body. His blond hair is worn in long ringlets over his shoulders. His blue eyes, under heavy lids, have a look of scrutiny. His nose is pointed and aristocratic, but his mouth is large and coarse. His manner is watchful, but pleasant. He is dressed in the height of fashion. He wears a great hat with long curling black plume. When Reynolds goes to the men upright, two of them move away and go off up left. A third sits right of table. Reynolds then sits on sill of center window on right. Well, Talleyrand, I thought you had decided to return to France. Change your mind, eh? Rather risky yet for the aristocrats to go back. Coming down left of table left. I leave tomorrow. I am settling my score with the beautiful Melissa. One row, sitting left of table. You're going to take the chance, eh? Well, I hope to follow you in a very short time. Talleyrand, leaving Melissa, who curtsies and goes out upright. Do follow me, Senator Monroe? As minister to France. Talleyrand, back of table. Ah, yes, how charming. President Washington has already appointed you, hmm? Not yet, but we shall get it all right. We? Oui. Oh, you also? Hmm. Two ministers? No, not two ministers. But sometimes it takes two men to get one job. Enter Schuyler from street up left. He comes to center looking around. Ah, you mean it is not so easy. You have to deal with uh, Alexander Hamilton. We'll deal with him all right. Alexander Hamilton. General Philip Schuyler is a large man, inclining to stoutness. He has a gouty foot and walks with a slight limp. His dress suggests the aristocrat. His manner is open and genial. He is a handsome, lovable old gentleman. He carries a handsome cane. Shh! Howdy, everybody. Two or three of the men say, Howdy, General. The second citizen rises and bows. Talleyrand goes to him effusively. Ah, General Schuyler, how are you? Schuyler, turning and bowing. Count Talleyrand. Talleyrand takes his two hands warmly. And how fares your illustrious son-in-law, Alexander Hamilton? Why, I guess he's all right. I've just come from Albany. I've been over to his house and find he's not at home. Giles moves to chair back of table left and shows Monroe papers. Ah, it is good for him to get away from his labors sometimes. Well, it's a queer thing for him to be away this time in the morning. Turning again to look around to the right, another man rises and says, Howdy, General. I thought he might be here. Reynolds, advancing effusively, taking off his hat and making a low bow. General Schuyler, now I'll sell you one of these. Schuyler ignores him and turns back to Talleyrand. Reynolds goes up to behind table, laughing. Everybody calls here. 
yes everybody comes to see everybody at the exchange coffee house <laughs> i find it amusing it is club restaurant merchants exchange everything enter melissa with drinks places them on the table right i will alter all that in time count talleyrand we're young you know give alexander hamilton time to sow some seeds we'll have a real merchants exchange and a real live country that will be able to pay its debts Ugh. twinge of gout melissa gets chair from in front of post right and brings it down right of schuyler replacing it against table then taking tray with other drinks across to table down left giving one to giles and one to monroe and i hope i shall have a real foot which i haven't at this moment and if you don't mind melissa my girl i'll just rest it in the parlor before i hobble along good day to you count talleyrand going left i shall call on alexander before i leave he'll be extremely glad to see you <laughs> confound this foot goes off right reynolds who has been drinking and conversing with one or two shady-looking characters coming to him count talleyrand before you return to la belle france wouldn't you like to buy up the whole of the french loan i'll sell it to you for ten cents laughter enter left from street thomas jefferson he is a man over six feet tall his red hair is unpowdered he has pointed features and a freckled face his corduroy breeches are well worn jefferson coming down stage center a good day to you citizens first man rises and says good day mr jefferson one or two other men say mr jefferson melissa coming forward with a curtsy to left of jefferson good day to you mr jefferson good day to you melissa and how is your father today mandin i hope yes your honor thank you your honor no honor for me just a plain citizen melissa tell him i asked after him moving toward table left thank you sir curtsies and is going right jefferson turning slightly raising finger in protest and leave off the sir yes sir jefferson laughs slightly amused a little madeira now melissa she goes hurriedly right and exits citizen monroe shakes hands good day to you citizen giles does not shake hands with giles howdy tom jefferson jefferson turning in front of table oh citizen talleyrand talleyrand coming down center count talleyrand if you please in america there are no titles citizen talleyrand in this land of the free all men are equal and they say titles ain't so very popular in france just now jefferson sitting right of table left ah, france what a glorious change the apostle of liberty and fraternity liberty fraternity <laughs> what do you mean by liberty mr jefferson jefferson points to cap over mantel well, ask your own countryman citizen talleyrand there you behold the symbol of the liberty of your great land of france to us in america that crimson cap stands as a symbol of freedom a symbol calls that dirty rag a symbol of liberty i call it a symbol of license of lawlessness of murder what say you thomas jefferson to the murder of my king louis of france is that too a symbol of liberty of fraternity 
It is the will of the people. The time is not far distant, it is intolerant, when every king in Europe will have been swept into the dust heap of history. Approval from the crowd. Louis XVI was an oppressor of the people. A tyrant. Yes, sir. Talleyrand to Jefferson. You say that? You who for five years were minister of France and enjoyed his friendship. You who have sat at his table. And it was necessary to use the arm of the people. Fate decreed that your newly founded republic should be cemented with the blood of aristocrats. Down with aristocrats. Down with tyrants everywhere. Yes, I know your idea of liberty. Down with aristocrats. Down with everybody who is in your way. I'll tell you one thing, Citizen Tolerant, and I'll tell it to you now. There are some damned aristocrats in this country that will get the same treatment your king got if they don't go careful. Who helped you win your freedom? The king of France. Well, we ain't going to have any kings in this country. Who desires to be king? George Washington does. And Alexander Hamilton wants to be prime minister. Wants to be? He is prime minister this very minute. Prime minister of America. Huh. By this time, everybody in the room is listening. Jefferson, conciliatory. Oh, I assure you, Citizen Talleyrand, Citizen Giles, and Citizen Monroe voice the sentiments of the great body of the American people. Murmurs of assent from the crowd. There is a growing unrest all over this land at the aristocratic tendencies of our president. There is a bitter and righteousness opposition to Alexander Hamilton's efforts to centralize the government and assume the debts of the 13 free and independent states. Such a centralization of power would inevitably lead to monarchy. And I stand on the platform of the rights of man, the rights of the individual, the rights of each state to its freedom. And I tell you, citizen tolerant, the gravest danger that threatens America today rests in the persons of those men who are striving to centralize the power of the United States, striving to establish a military dictatorship. Approval from crowd at table right. One man strikes the table to emphasize his agreement. A condition that will involve us in European quarrels in which it should be our policy to take no part. How can you keep out of European quarrels when your interests are bound up with those of Europe? Our riches and resources can bid defiance to any power on earth. It is only when our rights are invaded that we should make preparation for our defense. Talleyrand with a shrug. Yes, and then it will be perhaps too late. Citizen Talleyrand. I look for the day when, during the rage of eternal wars in Europe, the lion and the lamb within our regions shall lie down together in peace. Talleyrand, down beside Jefferson. Yes, they would lie down together, until the lion felt hungry. Then he would get up and eat the lamb. Laughter from crowd. Against this tendency towards centralization, we who love the freedom of our own state will fight to the death. Talleyrand, moving to center. Yes, thirteen jealous states all working against each other. How are you going to pay your debts without a central government? You have no credit abroad. Your paper is not worth five cents on the dollar. 
why don't you pay the men who furnished you supplies for your war why don't you pay the soldiers who gained you that liberty that you love so dearly damn the soldiers this country's going to put a stop to washington's coddling of the army talleyrand advancing a little to giles it was the soldiers who won you your precious freedom well virginia's paid her soldiers talleyrand coming down on monroe's level has south carolina has rhode island that's no affair of virginia no sir why not did not the soldiers of rhode island help virginia to her liberty each one fought for the common good each one should be paid by that citizen talleyrand i understand you to mean that the government should assume the war debts of all the states those debts were the price of your liberty if you have a government it should pay the country's debts oh, citizen talleyrand you're simply speaking from alexander hamilton's platform you're an aristocrat some of the crowd agree with this so's hamilton talleyrand shrugs his shoulders and moves to right center and as such you cannot possibly understand the love of liberty that burns in the heart of every loyal american rising and coming to talleyrand this attempt by alexander hamilton to compel the central government to assume the debts of the thirteen states is merely a trick a maneuver to give a greater power to that central body and to ruthlessly crush the freedom of the states we as virginians love virginia her freedom and will fight for her freedom moves back to his chair talleyrand coming toward him fight mon dieu where were you when alexander hamilton stormed the redoubts at yorktown well as you know citizen talleyrand i'm not a soldier sits giles looking at monroe jefferson has never been a fighter you know citizen talleyrand citizen 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 you prate and boast about the rights of man and sneer at alexander hamilton as an aristocrat have any of you worked for the rights of man as he has when it was an affair of fighting for your liberty he fought at the age of nineteen twenty years he had risen to be colonel and was leading the victorious charge at yorktown at the hour when your liberty was assured he laid down his arms and commenced to make a nation of you i tell you i have known all the great men of my time pitt fox washington and of them all it is my boast that i know alexander hamilton adieu he sweeps out left exit to the street during the following dialogue there is general movement and talking amongst the crowd some laugh tolerantly others shake their heads in doubt the first man rises and bowing to the man he has been talking to crosses to the man at the fireplace who is reading the paper has a few words with him and then exits upright the man he has been speaking to downright rises and is joined by the man who has been sitting on the other side of the table right they take arms and stroll out up left chatting as they go one of the quakers goes into the street left and the other comes to center and watches the men who were playing chess he afterwards sits in the upper corner of settle left of fireplace reynolds strolls up and takes down a pipe from mantel he chats a moment with a soldier who is sitting left of table right the man who is reading the paper goes off right leaving the paper on settle why the crazy hush he's right friends he's right hamilton is a great man but his energies are misdirected 
rises and moves to center. Great man, why you ain't got half the following you have? That infernal French aristocrat has put the whole thing in a nutshell. Hamilton and Washington are working against the interests of the individual. They're working against us. During this, Melissa enters from right with a glass of Madeira, puts it on table left, and then, crossing over to post right, she hangs a card on it. It is a notice of a ship's sailing. Reynolds has some business of flirting with her. He slips his arm through hers. She resents and exits left. Reynolds goes off upright. Well, come, come. We mustn't say that. Well, it's true. That may be, but... Well, what are you going to do about it? Jefferson to Melissa. Oh, thank you, my dear. He and Monroe drink. As they drink, Reynolds flirts with Melissa. See above. Citizen Monroe, I, I came in hope of finding you here this morning because I have decided that it's necessary that you and I should make a friendly call upon Alexander Hamilton. During dialogue, the two men who have been playing chess rise and consult the card Melissa has hung up. One of them makes some notes. They exchange a few words, bow to each other, and go off up right and left. The Quaker remains on settle, left a fireplace, reading from a small book. A friendly call. To consolate him. With what object? We need his cooperation. Sits again. The decision of the location of the capital of the United States is now a matter of urgent necessity. It is vitally necessary that we should secure the capital for the South, where our influence is paramount. Don't see any need to worry about that. The North hasn't got any chance anyway. Why, Washington's a Virginian if he is under Alexander Hamilton's thumb. Giles, rising. George Washington ain't got a damn bit of loyalty in him. Well, come, come. I cannot discuss this matter with you, Citizen Giles, unless you refrain from your invective. Well, he's a Virginian, and yet he's just as interested in New York and Massachusetts as he is in Virginia. It makes me sick. A soldier who has been sitting left at table right rises and goes off upright, smiling. The capital of the United States doesn't go to the north as long as James Monroe has a fight in him. Let us consider our own position. Hamilton is straining every nerve to pass through Congress his bill for the government assumption of states' debts. Reynolds appears at door upright, smoking a pipe. He leans against door a minute, then comes to post right and pretends to be reading the card while he listens. It's an outrage. Let every state pay for its own debts. Well, we're blocking that bill and we'll continue to block it to the last ditch. Giles sits back of table left. Without our cooperation, which we cannot possibly extend, his bill cannot go through. Then what's the use of us going to ask favors of him when he knows perfectly well that we are the most active opponents of his bill? I say, fight him. I believe you're right, Giles. Fight him. Jefferson, coming toward table left, Come, come, Monroe. More flies may be caught with a dish of molasses than with a sea of vinegar. You know, you've set your heart on being appointed minister to France. I have. Hamilton's word will go a long way with Washington. Reynolds turns his head slightly toward them. Then, picking up paper, sits on seat right of fireplace and reads, removing his hat which he places beside him. Come. 
will make a friendly call. Hamilton will fight tooth and nail to have the capital in New York. That may be. Hamilton is a New Yorker. Giles sneers. Is he? He comes from God knows where. Shh. A bastard born in the... Monroe and Jefferson protest. Jefferson rises. We don't need to discuss his arrival into the world, Giles. I am far more interested in his removal. Reynolds turns chair in front of him and puts his feet on it. Jefferson, moving to center. We must be prepared for his opposition to the South. It will be a lasting disgrace to this country if the capital is not in Virginia. Uh, too remote, Monroe. You see, we have no post roads and inaccessible from New England. Damn it, ain't you working for Virginia? I'm afraid we cannot hope for Virginia. I believe, though, if we go carefully, there is a chance of getting it for the South. Where? On Potomac. Well, that's a damn sight better New York. Jefferson, coming back to table. Come, we will call on Hamilton this evening. A friendly call, after supper, perhaps. But remember, we must steer clear of any mention of his bill for the government assumption of state debts. It doesn't suit me to go begging to Hamilton. He's got the president wound round his little finger. And the people trust him. Shake the people's faith in him, that's the thing. Reynolds lowers his paper a moment. His honest, Giles. We've tested his honesty. Yes, the Anti-Federalists have attacked his honesty as Secretary of the Treasury from every possible angle, and he's always beaten us. We ain't used up our whole bag of tricks yet, not by a damn sight. Jefferson, with a slight look of disapproval at Giles. Then, Citizen Monroe, we will meet here this evening at nine. Monroe rises. We'll make a late call on Hamilton, as I wish our visit to be regarded scarcely as one related to business. He goes up to street door left. Giles, scratching chin. If we could only make the people believe that Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, ain't playing fair with the gate money, why, we'd have the whole country in our pockets. Reynolds can be observed listening. Enter Schuyler from parlor left, followed by Melissa. At sound of Schuyler's voice, Giles rises, and crossing the table right, puts his foot up on a chair and thinks. I think I'll be hobbling off, Melissa. My regards to your father. Melissa crosses Schuyler to chessboard at fireplace. Good day to you, Citizen Schuyler. Returning from street door. Schuyler, at post left of fireplace. How do you do, Mr. Jefferson? How do you do, Senator Monroe? And how's the gout? Well, it's... Ugh. Oh, I can't tell you in the presence of this young lady... Melissa, taking pipes off chess table, moves over to table right, picks up some jugs, and exits upright. Monroe, coming up left. We were just talking about your son-in-law, Alexander Hamilton. Ugh, uh, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, Mrs. Hamilton is not back from England yet. No, Betsy's not back yet. I understand she went over to see your other daughter, who was sick. I trust she's better. Yes, she's all right now, thank God. Mr. Jefferson and I propose to drop in and see Alexander Hamilton tonight. I hope that he is well. Yes, he's as well as you fellows will let him be. Monroe, 
a step towards him angrily. What do you mean by that, General Schuyler? Schuyler, responding with anger. You know what I mean. Monroe goes up to street door left. Jefferson, between them and laughing. Come, come, do not let us quarrel. We are coming in to have a little chat with Citizen Hamilton concerning the location of the capital. Schuyler looks interested. Citizen Schuyler, I bid you a good day, sir. Good day to you, Citizen Giles. Good day. Good day. Exit Jefferson and Monroe to left through a street door. Give my love to Alexander. Grins. Schuyler looks after Jefferson and Monroe, and then at Giles. You're cooking something for him between you, and you're the chief stoker. I'm a fighter, if that's what you mean. Yes, you're a fighter, but a damned sportsman. When your party wants to circulate any damnable insinuations about Alexander Hamilton, they go to Giles of Virginia, and he does the dirty work. Giles turns. Because you and your gang know that Alexander has the confidence of the people, and that he means to make the government assume the state's debts, you are forever trying to trip him up, shouting corruption in the treasury, dishonesty in the treasury, and God knows what. Moving toward left and turning again, I don't say who's the author of the accusations. I don't say it's Tom Jefferson or Senator Monroe, but I know where to put my hand on the man who does the dirty work. Giles crosses angrily toward him. Yes, you're a fighter, but you know only one knockout blow, and that's the one below the belt. You needn't glare at me. I wouldn't soil my hands with you, but this is one of the times when I wish I had gout anywhere but in my foot. Exit Schuyler left to street. Giles thinks hard and looks ugly, then laughs and comes down to right of table left and drinks. Reynolds, who has been listening and enjoying the row, says meditatively, Shake the people's faith in him. Giles, turning to him, What you say? Reynolds, smiling, Shake the people's faith in him. You've been listening, huh? Well, that's the only way to get a living, Mr. Giles. Keeping my ears open. Picking up his hat from beside him. Well, keep your mouth shut. Sits right of table left and chews a toothpick. Reynolds, rising and coming to center, slowly, laughing. Pretty hard job to shake the people's faith in Alexander Hamilton, ain't it? Mind your own damn business. Reynolds laughs and crosses the chair back of a table left. Puts his hat down on table. <laughs> you've tried to prove him incompetent you've tried to prove him dishonest but there's one thing you haven't tried mr giles back of table giles turning away from him go to the devil and it's strange you haven't thought of it how about a woman giles is silent a moment rolls toothpick around in his mouth spits it out replaces it with another, and then looks at Reynolds. You're a little gentleman, ain't you, Reynolds? Women are the deuce for tangling up a man's finances. You know all about it, don't you? Yes, I know a great deal about women. I'm married, you know. Yes, I know. I know a good deal about men, too. Now, Mrs. Hamilton is away. Been away a long time in England. Now... What do you say? Giles, turning away. I don't want any advice from you. 
Besides, as you know so much, you know that Hamilton hardly ever leaves his house. Makes it all the easier. Send the woman to the house. Giles, looking in front of him. What the devil do you mean? It's a matter of choosing the right woman and the right moment. Puts down pipe and leans forward. You've seen Mrs. Reynolds, haven't you? Your wife? Yes. Giles, turning squarely toward him. God, you're a bad one, ain't you? Reynolds, leaning back and smiling. I'm what may be called a soldier of fortune, Mr. Giles. You'd come in on the blackmailing end of the game, huh? You'd do any damned thing for a ten-dollar piece, wouldn't you? Yes. I'm afraid my price is a little lower than yours, Mr. Giles. Leans forward again. You might see Mrs. Reynolds. She's a nice little thing. I'm very fond of her. But she's too good for me. Giles, looking in front of him again. Oh? Yes. It's the clothes, you know, that cause the trouble. She must have pretty clothes. She's young, you see. She... Noticing that Giles is interested, he takes a pen and writes on a slip of paper, rises and puts the paper on Giles's knee. That's our address, Mr. Giles. Reynolds, picking up his hat, moves towards door left. She be at home now? Looking at paper. Reynolds, smiling and coming back a step. Yes, I think so. You've seen her with me, haven't you? Yes. She's a pretty little thing, ain't she? Giles looks at him sideways. She's a clever little thing, too. <laughs> well, good day, Mr. Giles. Exit Reynolds, left. Giles remains looking at the paper, apparently thinking it over. He reaches for his hat, which is on the table beside him, rises with sudden determination, puts his hat on, looks again at the paper, then with his mind made up, he exits quickly through the street door up left. Curtain End of Act One